Thank you, Josh. That was a uh, chapter 15 rated R uh, episode, if you uh, followed along. There's lots of violence that we're about to talk about. But the other night, uh, Cody and I and a family, we, I don't remember where we were coming home from, but we were all in the car uh, having a great time wherever we were just at. Uh, that's not really the, the point. Uh, actually, I think we had just seen a movie. We were on our way home, um, and something happens to, to one of the kids in the back of the Suburban. Uh, that kid then retaliated. Uh, I'm going to leave everybody nameless. That kid retaliated, does the same thing back to the one who did it to them. And it kind of goes back and forth. And, and it really was just playful uh, with the two of them up front uh, until one of them uh, it t- it takes it too far and it, they take offense to it. And now at this point, they're angry. So if you've ever been mom and dad driving in the car, lots of stuff happening in the back. They continue to go back and forth and anger is driving them, each of them, to take revenge on the other. Well, they did this, so I'm going to do this. And it goes back and forth, and now the one who wasn't involved naturally thinks they need to be involved. We have three, and so there's two always going at it, and then that third one just steps in because they should, at least they think they should. They need to now be involved, and they go after it. That person, to be unnamed, goes after each one of them. Back and forth, and after about three minutes of just... Chaos, what started as just poking and fun and, and having a good time, just turned into this mass chaos. And after three minutes of it, it's determined. Cody and I look at each other and we're like, we don't know what has really happened. We, we are so far into this, none of us know what's happened. We're, I'm fully involved at this point. Cody is fully involved. Now, we're driving down the interstate, okay? Lots is happening. Everyone's yelling louder and louder because everybody wants to be heard. And of course... As you're driving down the interstate, yelling louder naturally just solves all of the problems. I want you to hear me, so I will yell louder. We pull back up to the house. This was all within like three to five minutes, just complete context. I bet we exited the interstate, and from I-20 to our house, three to five minutes, this all takes place. We pull back up to the house. Nothing's resolved, of course. I'm made out, as always, to be the bad guy. Because I get involved, I'm made out to be, like I can hear Ellie right now, just like, that is not true. But dad takes the blame here, right? Like I get involved, I'm always the bad guy. But really, here's what we determine. Brighton's not at fault because she's the youngest, okay? Some of y'all who are the youngest can relate to that. Deacon's not at fault because he's the middle. He's just quiet and stays out of everything. And Ellie's the fall girl since she's the oldest. Anybody? Any oldest kids? Would you agree with that? Like you... You just always are the fall girl. I can relate to that. Many of us can relate to that. And here's the funny part. A few days later, Cody and I are having lunch. We're sitting there. She's asking me. She loves to ask about the sermon. Hey, how's it coming? How's how's the prep work? What are you learning this week? And so I tell her a little bit about chapter 15. I'm explaining to her about Samson and about how he responds in anger, how he's out to get revenge. And it's this story back and forth of of doing what's been done to him. And now he's leading with this anxious presence that we're going to see about. And I'm like all in on telling her over lunch. And she's sitting there smirking the entire time. And I finally just look at her and say, what's so funny? And she says, so I guess you're going to talk about how you've been Samson this week. And like totally puts me in my place. Uh, I, I thought y'all'd laugh about that a little bit more. She literally put me in my place and said, "So you're you're gonna tell them how you were Samson." But all jokes aside, every action prompts a reaction. 
right? Everything that happens to you, every action that is taken uh, place to you or that you do prompts its own reaction. And if you have a choice with how we respond in those circumstances, sometimes I think we would say we nail it, right? Like sometimes we respond with such grace and mercy. Something's done to you and you have a chance to react and you just nailed it. Grace Mercy, you're quick to listen, slow to speak. We don't let the emotions of others dictate our response. We win the day and everyone is better for it. But then there's most days when life happens, right? Like when we're wrestling through some sort of conflict in our own life, interpersonal conflict or, or just even personal conflict, hurt, we've got anger, we're, we're dealing with just sadness of, of what's taking place. We're trying to navigate our own mess of emotions, and we have this impulsive reaction that maybe it's not the best reaction. Just like for me the other night, I was driving along, minding my own business, and all of a sudden I found myself thrusted into this conflict. Like, what are you going to do about this? It's out of hand, and I'm now in the midst of, of this conflict, not even by my own choice or doing. And so there's this action that prompts my reaction, but now I'm wrestling through all sorts of my own emotions. We're driving down the interstate. I'm fearful. Things are getting out of hand, right? Like, I, I'm fearful. I'm mindful of what's happening. I'm, I'm trying to get my family home safely. There's anger. Why is everybody yelling? I'm angry now. I'm now. My reaction is I am just so furious at why is everybody yelling? Like when people yell or when it's loud, I have this, this ring in my ear. Maybe I'm getting old. I'm not for sure. But like my ear just starts ringing. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is so loud. So there's anger in my own heart and there's sadness. We just had a great time together. All of that's thrown out the window now. I'm a little bit sad. And as I'm navigating just my own emotions, I felt a need to match the angst I felt with everyone around me. My reaction was impulsive. I didn't like that I was now getting yelled at. Why is everyone screaming? So then my response, I react by yelling back. And as the cycle goes, my reaction prompted a reaction for them. I'm yelling, so they want to not only match what I'm doing, they want to be louder because I'm loud. And it's this back and forth, a cycle just continues on this downward spiral. Now, I think most of us can relate to that. Even if you're not a parent, like you have these conflicts in your life where, where your reaction matches those that you're around. If somebody's angry, man, I'm angry for them. If the Cowboys win today, and you may not even be a fan, but you just love Sean, and Sean's cheering for the Cowboys, you're like, yes, go Cowboys. Like you, just, you just want that. You match what is around you. I don't think any of us wakes up and says, man, I can't wait to live just this impulsive lifestyle. Like, I just can't wait to just match everything around me that's bad and terrible, and, and, and I, don't, I, I can't wait to wake up and be angry because Kenny's angry today, I'm going to be angry. Like, I don't think we wake up for that. I know I didn't that day. Like, I didn't, I didn't wake up and think, I can't wait to just thrust myself into all this anxiety. And yet, I found myself wrestling with that. And I even did my quiet time that day, just to be clear. All right? Amen. 
I'm doing the Bible reading plan. Like I did it that day and I still responded that way. So I don't think we desire to live in such, um, such anxiety and tension. Like where someone uh, says or does something, it pr- provokes this impulsive reactivity from us. To be very clear, I don't think any of us say we want our surroundings and other people and circumstances to dictate how I feel and live. Well, this morning, as we continue on in our story of Samson, now a man, a judge who has been given the spirit of the Lord, God has raised him up to judge his people, to deliver God's people from oppression. As we continue on in this story, we've seen his impulsive behavior continue to worsen. If you were here last week, we're going to see it again today. It continues to worsen. We actually will begin to see his life implode. Every action that is done to him or that he does, it requires a reaction. It prompts this reaction. And if you can recall last week, excuse me, chapter 14 ends with Samson responding, reacting in anger to what has happened. Now, the Philistine men... Uh, I won't go through the whole story, but you can, you can read that or, or maybe this will catch you up. Uh, the Philistine men manipulated and threatened Samson's bride-to-be, this Philistine gal that had caught his eye. He had lusted over. He said, I want her. And so he goes to marry her. They're in this feast. He gives them this uh, riddle and uh, says, if you can figure this out, you know, I'll, I'll give you 30, each of you a pair of fancy clothes. And so they wanted to figure out the meaning of this, and they go to his bride-to-be and they manipulate and threaten her and say, hey, if you don't help us, we're going to burn you and your family. Like, you're dead to us. And so, like, this was a friendly riddle. And they take it to the next step here, to the last step, death. Um, But he chooses to allow the people around him to dictate his reaction. Not knowing how to handle his anger, it turns to rage. But if you think with me really quick, like this... This is what I want us to see. Like, that's how Samson responds, very angrily. He responds in rage. But think with me really quick. This man just tore apart a lion. Like, he's strong. Tore it apart with his bare hands. Do we think, do we not think he could have handled this situation a bit differently? Like, if, if I find out this man, if Sean comes to me, and he doesn't just do CrossFit, but he's actually torn and ripped apart a lion, I'm probably going to respond to Sean a bit differently. I'm probably not going to like bow up to him and think that I can take him. I've never done that. But Samson goes and, and, and he responds. He reacts to the Philistine men. They're angry. They just want to know the riddle. They just want a new pair of bougie clothes. And what Samson does is he says, hey, I'm going to respond the same way you're responding. And out of rage, he responds terribly. He could have responded a hundred different ways. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. Maybe he could have even used his strength to, like, negotiate. Like, hey, fellas, you sure you really want to do this? Do you know what I've done? You know I CrossFit. You know I do this. I've torn apart a lion. You sure you want to come at me like this? But instead, the angst and the anxiety from others, all of the emotions that he felt from them, He matches it, and he reacts with such impulsive behavior, which this impulsive behavior, as you see, leads him down the road where he murders 30 men. He doesn't just match their emotions. He actually yells louder, and he goes and murders 30 men in order to pay back his debt. And he goes and he gives the men their expensive clothing, and we're left with Samson storming off, throwing a little temper tantrum from his own wedding feast. 
leaving behind the woman he desired to marry, and he returns home to his father. In chapter 15, Samson's had time to cool off. You just heard it read, but he's driven by lust. Remember, that's, that's what caught his eye back in 14, this Philistine woman. And so what does he do? He goes home, he cools off. He's drawn back to what to take what he wants, which is this Philistine woman he desired. So he returns. So we see upon his return to the father of his soon-to-be uh, bride, he says, I want my wife. A lot of audacity there. If I went to my, fa- my soon-to-be father-in-law and said, hey, I just want my wife. I, just give me what I, I, like, I can't even imagine what Scott Burt would do to me. He would, I don't even want to imagine what he would do, do to me. But Samson goes and he says, I want my wife. But here he's met with a father who says, well, you can't have her. You stormed off, so I assumed you hated her. So I gave her to another man. But you can have her younger sister. She's just as beautiful, maybe even more beautiful than her. You're welcome to her. Another action prompting a reaction. Another opportunity for Samson to respond. And yet another way in which Samson's impulsive behavior wins the day. So what happens? Samson doesn't like the dad's response, right? Now mind you, Samson, I want you to hear this. Samson's the one that made the bet. Samson's the one that stormed off in chapter 14. He's the one that left and just ran back to daddy. It's not out of the ordinary, this father, to see this as clear abandonment. But Samson, track with what I'm saying here. Samson takes this as, this is belittling me. You give me what I want. And somebody said no, but culturally speaking, this dad has every right to say, well, I'm sorry, young man, you left. You stormed back to your daddy, and I'm not going to give my daughter to you. Now, you're welcome to this, to, to... Sounds terrible, but that culturally speaking, you're welcome to to her sister. Samson wasn't fit for his daughter. Like, he could have come back. Think about this. He had time to cool off. He could have come back. He could have owned his response. He could have owned what he had done. He could have tried to work through it, but he says, I want to go to bed with what belongs to me. That's what's driving him here. Next week, the next two weeks get rough. A lot of sexual immorality, like this is what's driving him. He wants what he wants. And now because he doesn't like how the father responds, Samson is set out to get revenge. But what's interesting here is how Samson seems to justify it. Samson says, says in our, our passage, Samson said to them, this time I will be blameless when I harm the Philistines. It's almost as if like this time he's convinced that no matter what he does, it's justifiable. No matter how he responds to them, doesn't just match the, the tension and anxiety. Like he, it justifies everything that he is about to do. In his eyes, he's been harmed and betrayed so much that he's going to do whatever it takes to get back at them. And it's justifiable. That's what he thinks. Because look at what they have done to me. So he reacts. Again, very interesting story. 
he reacts in a very creative way. Like, this is crazy to me. He pours all of his, instead of responding in wisdom and thinking, okay, I see how they're responding. I see the dad's angry. Let me think through this. Let me take a deep breath. Let me take a step back. God, what would you want from me? He pours all of his effort into his reaction for revenge. This is the path he's chosen. This is the path of his reaction, is revenge. How much wiser would it have been to respond with a non-anxious presence? Think about what he does. Takes the time, and he creatively designs a plan for revenge. I don't know how long it took this, but 300 foxes, it says he goes out and captures. Like, I, I varmint hunt. I love it. I don't know if I've ever called in 300 foxes in my entire life. Maybe 30. Like, that's over a span of 20 years of doing it. Like, 300 foxes. This is pretty impressive. This is, this is actually wild to me as I read through this. And not only that, he goes to the, the extreme lengths to know that what, what time of year is it? Well, it's harvest time. Revenge is driving him not to just match what was done to him. It, it's over. I'm coming at them. And so it's harvest time. Where's all their security? You know, it's about to be cold. We're, you know, it's harvest time. The fields need to be, the fields are plentiful. They need to be, the crops need to be picked. And so what does Samson do? He goes after their livelihood. He goes after all of their security. He takes these 300 foxes. He knows it's harvest time. He takes the foxes towards the grain fields as we see. He ties them tail to tail. Kiddos, this is, this is pretty wild. He ties them tail to tail and he lights the tails on fire. Two at a time. Now, I've read all sorts of stuff about people who think, well, what happened to the foxes? That seems detrimental. Most of the people have said, what probably happened is their tails burned and then it stopped. But you have to imagine, I don't know how long it took for their tails to burn, but tail, tails tied two and two, you have now foxes that are, are, are differing. I'm going this way. No, we're going this way. All while they're on fire, all while they're running through the fields that are ready to be harvested. And what's happening? Everything's being set on fire. Foxes are going insane. They're running through the fields. And not only that, we see he turns them loose, and they even make it down into he destroys their, their vineyards, their fruit groves, totally wiping out his enemy's security. And for him, it's totally justifiable because he can't have what he wants. This is, is what revenge does. Doing what was right in their own eyes. Doing what was right in his own eyes. Revenge has one goal. Its only intent is to burn things to the ground. That's it. Like, I, I've been there. I know where you're like, man, if I could just say this one thing to that person, or if I could just stand up to this one person and, and get back what, you know, what was taken from me. Like, I get it. I get that feeling. And in that feeling, if I'm honest, my one goal is to burn that person to the ground. I want my pride. I want my security. I want whatever it is that they took or that they challenged. Don't come at me. Because if you do... The heart of revenge says, I'm, I'm going to burn things down. No matter the consequences. And man, it's a sad story. Like this story is super sad. Samson's impulsive response of revenge was to burn things to 
the ground. And the Philistines' reaction, if you think about this, he said, she said type stuff, or you do this, and my reaction is going to not only match it, but I'm going to go louder, and then when you do that, my re- their reaction is going to be this. What's the Philistines' reaction? You burned our security, we're going to burn your bride and her entire family. Not a figure of speech. You did that? Oh, we're coming after you now. You burned our security, I'm going to burn your, your soon-to-be wife and her family. Reaction, reaction, reaction. Samson's reaction is, because you did this? Now look, I swear that I won't rest until I have taken vengeance on you. Empowered by the Spirit, Samson says, until I take vengeance on you. God of the Bible, we see over and over, is a just God who fights for you who stands for you, who's the justifier of the inexcusable, the defender of the guilty. And Samson says, I won't rest until I have taken vengeance on you. Next part of the story, pretty graphic. He tore them limb from limb and then went down and stayed in the cave at the rock of Edom. Samson takes revenge and he tears the men from limb to limb. And this sparks a revolution. This sparks a war between these two nations. Philistines went to the Israelites, as the story goes, in Judah, and they attacked them. They're like, well, we don't know where Samson went, so let's go to his people. And they go down to the tribe of Judah, they attack them. They told the Israelites they needed that, hey, I need you to find Samson and you need to hand him over to us. Interesting. Don't forget this. The Philistines, enemies of the Lord, deep in the territory, remember last week, go to the Israelites because they rule over them, because the Israelites haven't drove them out, and they tell the Israelites what to do. Hey, you need to go deliver Samson to us. The man that was chosen by God to bring them out of oppression, they go to the people of Israel and say, hand us over your judge. So the Israelites, again, the ones who were supposed to drive out the people, including the Philistines, they put up no fight. They're like, oh yeah, of course. I can't believe they did that to you. We'll get them. They send 3,000 men to find Samson and they go to him This is what they say. Don't you realize that the Philistines rule over us? You idiot. Like, look what you've done. What have you done to us, Samson? And his reply is, I did to them what they did to me. So they tie him up. Like, he's not fighting at this point. I think there's some time of reflection in the cave, if you will. Probably a ton of remorse and shame. I would think there would be. Same guy that's been empowered by the Spirit. I would think there's time for him to reflect. So they tie him up securely. I, I love that they, it says they use, I mean, this guy's this guy strong. They use two new ropes. And they take him and they hand him over to the Philistines. And as they come to Samson shouting, the Spirit of the Lord powerfully came upon him. As you can see, his ropes fell off. Very interesting his ropes fall off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey 
and he killed a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. I don't know how long it took. I don't know where the thousand, like, I, I told Nick this week, sometimes I feel like this is like a cartoon scene, right? Like cartoon Samson, it's just like bowling ball guys, you know, and, and they're getting knocked over like the old cartoons. And I, I don't know how this plays out, but I know he kills a thousand men, probably pretty gruesome, the jawbone of a donkey. I can't imagine the power and the strength of this man. And he kills him, and he gives this victory chant. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. He throws the jawbone away, and he collapses to the ground because he's thirsty. Now, all of this is what drives Samson further and further away from God. Like, the, the evil of our human hearts, honestly, y'all, is an incurable disease. If you think about your own heart, I've, t- I've told you this before, as good as we might think we are, there's still an evilness in our heart, a deceitfulness. There's still a selfishness and pridefulness in our own hearts, And over and over again, the Israelites have the cards stacked in their favor. Like God provides miraculously for them. And they still can't get it right. And God is faithful. That's the story. And they rebel. But this is where the tension lies for us today. Like surely there's a better way. Instead of of revenge, surely there's there's a better way for us. And there is, and and I think the call for us, as strong as Samson was, as powerful as he was, I think the call for us is to be stronger than Samson by actually just running to the Father. Samson was so good at his own strength. He was so good when it needed to happen. He needed to be strong. He failed to recognize that it was the Spirit of the Lord. His own strength is his greatest weakness. Now, again, we're we're on this side of the story. So if you think back to chapter 14, verse 4, the the tension we saw last week was now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord. This is Samson's mom and dad who wanted the Lord, who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. So we, we can read that. We're on this side of that. And we can think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this is happening because God wanted this confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines. He was trying to divorce his own people from their idolatry and worshiping the things of this land. And he couldn't get their attention. So he used his own guy, not just the sinner, but he actually used the sin. And we saw that tension last week, that God's working all things together, even in the midst of sinner and sin, even when it's a story of revenge. But for us, my prayer is that in those moments of reaction, what if we would just let our stories, what if we wouldn't let our stories be one of revenge? Like, what if we would just take a step back and let God be God in those moments? Like he's faithful and just. What if we would just remember who he is and what he's done, how he's proven himself over and over again? What if we banked on him responding for us? Think about Isaiah chapter 30. Therefore the Lord is waiting. He's waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion for the Lord 
is a just God. All who wait patiently for him will be happy. That God is just and he is faithful to see things through for his glory and even for our good. So I, I think our spiritual life can be, be defined by how frequently and quickly we actually run back to the Father. So the question for us this morning is this, how do we run to the Father? Everything around us is crumbling, all of the angst, all of the different feels that we have, where there's so much turmoil around us, what does that even mean to run to the Father? And I think the answer is this, God's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit. I think by the power of His Spirit, we learn to walk at the pace of Jesus. And the pace of Jesus is love. So as, as weird as that sounds, how do we run to the Father? It's actually just learning by the power of the Spirit to walk at the pace of love, and that is Jesus himself. I'll tell you about a study that, that I've read. Some of you might have heard this, but in 1997, a highly respected Jewish rabbi and therapist by the name of Edwin Friedman. Anybody ever heard Edwin? There you go, a couple. Um, he wrote a book on leadership called The Failure of Nerve. This guy, was, uh, Friedman, was a, a well-sought-after expert on leadership. He wrote this book around a study that was performed that basically was on how our culture in 1997 was based on this myth of progress. Now, he, he's a Jewish rabbi, a therapist, uh, a, a Bible-believing person, and in 1997, he does this study, and he, he says our culture's built off of this myth of progress in the late 90s. Our culture was progressing economically. Like, you can look back, you think back to 97. Bulls had just won. Seinfeld's about to wrap up. All the things happening. Culture's progressing tech technologically. I think we might have had a bag phone in the car. Around, well, it might have been 99. Somewhere around in there. Phones, things like that, technology progressing. At that point, there was a far better standard of living than ever before. Science, technology, medicine, all the things. And Friedman in 97 argued that our culture, as good as all of this stuff is, and as, as advanced as we are, was actually regressing both emotionally and socially. Even with all the advances and raised standard of living, we as a culture, as a society in the West, were regressing then. That was in 97. Any Christian or secular study right now that you were to do, in, in whether that's Barna Research or any secular study that would be put out would tell you that more people feel more anxious right now than they did just three years ago. Much less go back to 97. Some of y'all weren't even alive in 97. Everything is on the ri rise. Divorce, marriage and families falling apart, gender and sexuality, everything's being attacked. Life is chaotic, and in 1997, Friedman discovered a theory known as the self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety. Or simply put, this is what he did. He looked at how we were living in such an anxious culture, and here's what he said. Here's what he determined. There's five stages, and I'll be quick working through this. I think this is helpful for us. The five stages is reactivity. How do people become anxious? Well, reactivity. People constantly react to the external events of life with internal anxiety. All that stuff is happening out there. This is what I'm feeling in here. Fear, anger, anxiety, outrage, isolation. <coughs> Think about, excuse me, the 24-7 news cycle right now. 
How many hits can those news, can each news feed get? Like they make money off of our anxiety. They make money off of how they word things on your phone and news alerts and breaking news and what, what grabs your attention. And every click, it's a clickbait where they're just making money off of our anxiety. More hits, more advertising, more money. So you have reactivity. The second stage he noticed, and this is again, 97. Think about it now. We have a herding instinct, meaning human beings, he recognized scripturally and culturally, we are a social creature. We're wired for community. So we're going to follow the crowd, especially the crowd that looks like us, talks like us, thinks like us. So this created the, you have reactivity, herding instinct, and then you have this blaming displacement. This is the third stage, he says, and Mark Sayers explains it. He says, instead of examining and searching out the underlying causes creating this toxicity, toxicity in our life, we focus on the symptoms, viewing them in isolation instead of viewing them as a system of a whole. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change in areas over which we have responsibility, we instead retreat to a victim status, blaming others and external forces. As blame is thrown around, a cultural paralysis sets in. A suffocating fear of offending creates gridlock, which prevents renewal in our own lives. Basically, look at the life of Samson. He is so quick to blame others for his reactions, never taking ownership of his own stuff. He will not take the ownership for any of his own feelings. It's always, well, they did that, so I'm going to do this. Reactivity, hurting community, if you will, blame displacement. And the next one, uh, that creates a fourth stage, which is this quick fix, All right? When fear sets in, I've got to do something. What am I going to do? Well, as a people in our culture right now, we have a low threshold for pain. We have a low threshold for, for resilience. Perseverance is not even a word we like to talk about. Something happens and we totally shut down. We grow weary so quickly. And so what do we do? We look for the silver bullet solution, the quick fix. Want to lose 20 pounds in, in a month? Take these pills. We look for the, the quick fix to hard, complex soul problems. That's, that's our culture. So there's this quick fix mentality. And then the final stage that he recognized then, 25 years ago, with all of that, it leads to this well-differential a lack of well-differential leadership. Or simply put, it leads to impulsive people. I could have just said that, but I wanted you to kind of, like this is 27 years ago, this study, and it was true then, and it is ever more present and true now. It leads to impulsive people. We can't look at an issue and see the other person's emotional state doesn't have to be mine. If Trin is in trauma, I... I I need to be the type of person where I can look at Trin and think, man, I see you, I, feel, I, I want to feel with you, but I'm not going to let what you're doing dictate my entire life. And what we do right now is, is we want to enter in and we want to empathize with people and we want to feel what they're feeling. And they're, that's all great. But don't let that dictate. Don't let your reaction to what other people are feeling dictate what you do. You're responsible for your feelings. You're responsible for how you respond and react. And what happens is we become impulsive people. We don't have to react 
to what other people are feeling. And we see this with Samson over and over again. Now, the cool thing about Friedman's work, just kind of thinking about in closing, wrapping this up, is that he says the only way to break that cycle of anxiety, that culture that we live in, the only way is to inject someone right into the middle with a non-anxious presence. I'm thankful we know a guy who had a non-anxious presence and we can model our life after the one who literally was injected into a culture full of angst and rebellion and idolatry and he came to us and he walked a life slow. There's one Japanese theologian that talks about Jesus uh, walked at the pace of love. I use that quote, but he, he goes on and says, because the average person walks at three miles an hour. Like, I want you to think about, God could have sent Jesus in 2024, and he could have done a lot more effective ministry. Think about his YouTube channel. Think about his blue check next to Twitter or, or whatever it all is. Like, think about the influence he could have had right now. But I think God had a different plan, knew what was on the horizon, knew his beautiful children would still walk in idolatry, and he sent Jesus... The best means of transportation for him was he came riding into a town on a colt, on a donkey. And that's what we have to model after, is to walk and breathe and live like Jesus. He was way more worried about the effectiveness of his ministry than he was trying to be efficient. Man, he just, he had this non-anxious presence about himself where he could get questioned by the religious authorities and respond calmly with asking them a question. Well, I don't know. Who do you say that I am? What do you think about that? Like, I, 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 never, I never see in the Gospels where Jesus takes on the feelings of his others. Matter of fact, when the disciples come to him with all of their anxiety, you know what he typically would do? Retreat to the wilderness over and over again to be with the Father. Probably to reset, probably to just learn, God, what, how am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to do? He never let what they were feeling dictate how he responded. Calm, collected. And man, this is a journey I've been on for, for 18 months. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. This is a journey I've been on for 18 months um, that, that is just trying to slow down. Right, like just trying to, you hear me say over and over again, we even model the church, not off of what I feel or sense, but we live in a community that is growing greatness, and man, we are going nonstop. Well, they're doing this. Well, we got to do this, and we got to do this, and I'm going to react this way. And if they're doing these lessons, then I got to have my daughter do these lessons, and I got to play on this club team. And if we don't do this, then we got to make this decision. And if I'm not room mom, then that person's going to be like, what? Wow, we live in such a fast-paced world. And so what has been helpful for me is actually looking at the way of Jesus. He slowly walked at the pace of love. I read that book, Ruthlessly, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Like John Mark Comer has been very transformative for me, just like listening and thinking about the ways and the practices and the habits of Jesus. He walked slowly. He responded to interruptions with grace and mercy. Not with harshness. He just responded with grace. I think we need to make, pace, make space for the pace of love in our life this week. Samson refused to live and walk slowly. He was impulsive. Always going. 
oh, what's that, a lion over there? Yeah, sure, I want some honey. Yeah, sure, let's do this. And he just went. I think we need to slow down. Second thing, I'll put all this in a, the weekly for you this week because I, I am going a little bit fast, but I think we need to learn to rest. I was talking to Jeff maybe this morning, just talking about uh, many a times we, um, what we should do is we should work out of rest, not rest to work. I think a lot of times we look at Sunday, the day of Sabbath, and it's like, oh, man, I got to rest because I got to get back at it tomorrow. No, no, no. I, I think we should work out of rest. That, that, those are two different mentalities there. God even rested. Our whole design and how we were created to, was to rest. Jesus would retreat and return or work, minister, and then he would retreat and he would re return. Jesus had time alone. He had close friends and community, people who knew him. They would rest and pray together and sing together. He'd return to work hard. He'd go right back at it. But there was lots of times where he withdrew to lonely places to pray. One author says, Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forgot. Time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. Simply put, resting is actually fighting against warfare. It's a priority for your mental and physical and emotional and spiritual, your relational state. We move too fast. Samson never withdrew for selfish reasons. The third thing, so you have slow, rest, community. Man, I think it's just said we need to be in community. We need brothers and sisters holding us accountable. Jesus had community. I have called you friends. Like he had deep, honest relationships, the people around him. I think that pushes back on that, that um, anxious presence that we feel, knowing people who can ask you the questions. Samson refused to be in community. Not once did he listen to his parents. He practiced aloneness. I think we can learn from that. The, third, the fourth thing was Jesus would sneak off to pray. I think we should run uh, not to the strength of ourselves, but run to the strength of our Father. And we do that in praying. One author says praying is like relaxing into God's goodness, where you talk less and listen more. It's a practice I think we can grow in. And then uh, the last thing, well, I'll, I'll close it with this. Samson, the chapter 15 closes with Samson going to prayer not because he chose to, but because he was dying of thirst. Samson prayed when he needed something. He became thirsty and he called out. You can see he called out to the Lord. And for the first time, we see the judge appointed by the Lord speak to the one who has chosen him. And what happens is God miraculously provided. He had been gracious and merciful. He gives him the water he needs. Samson demanded God help him. God looked past his terrible request and said, okay, I see you. I'm going to provide, not because of how you asked, because it was terrible, Samson, but because I'm gracious and I'm a father who's going to give you living water. Now, that's a lot. If you think about slowing down, resting, living in community, praying, there's a lot there. I just want to close with this. I, I want to invite us into a time where we actually think about how we live our life. I want us to think about the, the, the way you live your life and the invitation of following the way of Jesus is to slow down. 
is to rest, is to run to the Father in prayer, is to be in community. We have the perfect way, and his name is Jesus. And I don't know what that means for you in your life, but let's see what the Spirit has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you um, are good and right and perfect. We thank you that you love us, you care for us, Thank you that you speak to us, that your word is living and active. Father, at, at this moment, I just pray that you take all of that. Would it not be my words? God, would it not be confusing for us? The whole thrust was that we would just look to you. Whatever that needs to mean for us in our life today, would you lead us in our time of response? Would you slow us down and would we hear from you clearly today? Speak to me, Lord. Help me practice this. Let me practice the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.